0: Few people have ever heard of Peshtigo, Wisconsin. On a map of the U.S., it's easy to find Illinois, and north of that, almost like a mirror reflection, is Wisconsin. Travel north along the eastern border of Illinois, then north along the eastern border of Wisconsin, along Lake Michigan, far enough, and you'll hit Peshtigo, a little city of about 4,000 people last count. Just north of Peshtigo, you'll hit the border of the Michigan Peninsula. It's beautiful country, full of opportunities for camping, fishing, and outdoor activities, and chock full of peaceful little towns and communities that seem to have escaped life as big city people know it to be today. But it wasn't peaceful on October 8, 1871, when hell on earth came to Peshtigo in the form of a cyclonic fire and torched over 1,200,000 acres of beautiful countryside, hills, cities, and farms in eastern Wisconsin and Michigan. Today you'll find a winery in Peshtigo called the Forgotten Fire Winery. A strange name for a winery, you might think, until you hear the story behind the name. The Chicago Fire occurred on the same day as the Peshtigo Fire. The two were not at all related, and the entire world was transfixed on the fire that destroyed that great Midwestern city, Chicago. There, it was a lantern thoughtlessly placed within kicking distance of a cow in the barn on Decoven Street that was reputed to have set off the most destructive metropolitan blaze in the nation's history, resulting in property damage of over $200 million, and that was a lot for back then, and virtually annihilating the city's core. But Chicago wasn't the only disaster that occurred that day in the upper Midwest. On that fateful day of October 8, 1871, fires were raging all through the upper Midwest, in Holland and Manistee, Michigan, across the 40-mile-wide Lake Michigan, and at Port Huron on the southern end of Lake Huron, miles away from Peshtigo, all of them far from Chicago. In the forests of the upper Midwest, Lack of rainfall made conditions ripe for fires then, and when they did come, a powerful front swept in from the west and whipped those fires into cyclones. How bad was Pestigo? It burned to a crisp, an area half again as large as the state of New Hampshire, and killed somewhere between 1,500 and 3,000 people. They had no way of knowing just how many back then, and many were literally turned to ashes from the extreme heat. The loss of forest, farms, towns, and livestock was immeasurable. It created a firestorm so intense and fast that it threw rail cars and houses in the air and incinerated them. Like EF-5 tornadoes, there were miles-wide, terrible cyclones of fire containing superheated flames of at least 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If you can picture that, it was literally hell on earth. Today, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, we share eyewitness accounts and the story of that fire in memory to those who suffered its destruction. To this day, the Peshtigo Fire remains the deadliest forest fire on record in the U.S. To give you a little background, the setting of small fires was a common way to clear forest land for farming and railroad construction. On the day of the Peshtigo Fire, a cold front had moved in from the west, bringing strong winds that fanned the fires out of control and escalated them to massive proportions. A firestorm ensued. In the words of Pestigo Fire authors, Gess and Lutz, In a firestorm, the superheated flames of at least 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit advance on winds of 110 miles per hour or stronger. The diameter of such a fire ranges from 1,000 to 10,000 feet. When a firestorm erupts in a forest, it's a blow up, nature's nuclear explosion. By the time it was over, 1,875 square miles, or 1.2 million acres of forest, had been consumed. Twelve entire communities were destroyed. It's called the Pestigo Fire because Pestigo suffered the most casualties. An accurate death toll has never been determined. Between 1,200 and 2,500 people are thought to have lost their lives. The 1873 report to the Wisconsin Legislature listed 1,182 names of deceased or missing residents. In 1870, the town of Peshtigo had 1,749 residents. More than 350 bodies were buried in a mass grave, primarily because so many had died that no one remained alive who could identify all the bodies. Pestigo depended upon forestry and wood production for its livelihood. In the fall of 1871, like other localities to which the expanding railroads were bringing an undreamed prosperity, Pestigo, on the river of the same name, the Pestigo River, in Marinette County, was exploiting the surrounding forest lands to the fullest advantage. William G. Ogden, the Chicago millionaire, had invested heavily in what was then the country's largest woodenware factory to convert the river logs into such articles as pails, tubs, broom handles, barrel covers, and clothespins. There was also a sawmill, a sash, door, and blind factory, a foundry and blacksmith shop, stores, hotels, a boarding house, and, to the villagers' considerable pride, a schoolhouse, and a Protestant, as well as a Catholic, church. All this was as of the early evening of October 8th, when the village's official population of 1700 was swollen by an influx of recently arrived laborers to work on the railroad right-of-way, in addition to the usual number of salesmen, travelers, and visitors that could be found at any similar village. By daylight, less than 1,000 of this number were still alive, and only one structure, a partially constructed house, remained standing. The occurrences of that dreadful night have never been accorded their proper place in the history of American disasters, primarily because Chicago's ordeal was by its very nature more spectacular, more universally publicized, and more often revived in print. Peshtigo's chief historians have been two journalists and a novelist. The journalist, Frank Tilton, a Green Bay newspaperman who in 1871 put together a book of eyewitness accounts and his own reportage to sell for the benefit of survivors. And Robert W. Wells of the Milwaukee Journal, who in 1968 gave the Pestigo story a skillful and readable reconstruction. And the novelist, author William F. Stuber, Jr., who in 1957 used the tragedy as a basis for his prize-winning novel but no writer has yet to equal in vividness, imagery, or sheer drama the contemporary account written by Father Pernin, the parish priest for Pestigo and nearby Marinette, whose churches both burned to the ground, and whose account served as the basis for all future work. Published in Montreal in 1874, ostensibly to raise funds for a new church in Marinette, Father Pernin's account may also have been an attempt to exorcise the memories of that October night during which he suffered fearfully while behaving heroically. Not a great deal is known about Father Peter Pernan except that he was born in France in about 1825 and served parishes in Larable and Clifton in Illinois from 1865 to 1869. He was parish priest in Oconto in 1870 and in Marinette, Pestigo's neighbor, from 1871 to 1874 in the same way that we gave you the eyewitness account called the loss of the Titanic. We now offer you portions of Father Perrin's account here, in order to place you there in the Peshtigo area prior to, during, and after the horrific event. The citizens of that area were no strangers to fire, as it turns out, and in the days leading up to this disaster, they had narrowly averted disaster a number of times. It would take the perfect combination of upper and lower level winds to create the cyclones which would come. In Part 1 he describes the area, covered with forests and its inhabitants and businesses, and their constant fight with smaller fires. He writes, A country covered with dense forests, in the midst of which are to be met with here and there, along newly opened roads, clearings of more or less extent, sometimes a half-league in width to afford space for an infant town, or perhaps three or four acres intended for a farm. With the exception of these isolated spots where the trees have been cut down and burned, all is wild but majestic forest. Trees, trees everywhere, nothing else but trees as far as you can travel from the bay, either towards the north or west. These immense forests are bounded on the east by Green Bay of Lake Michigan, and by the lake itself. The face of the country is in general undulating, diversified by valleys overgrown with cedars and spruce trees, sandy hills covered with evergreens, and large tracts of rich land filled with the different varieties of hardwood, oak, maple, beech, ash, elm, and birch. The climate of this region is generally uniform and favorable to the crops that are now tried there with remarkable success. Rains are frequent, and they generally fall at a favorable time. The year 1871 was, however, distinguished by its unusual dryness. Farmers had profited of the latter circumstance to enlarge their clearings, cutting down and burning the wood that stood in their way. Hundreds of laborers employed in the construction of a railroad had acted in like manner, availing themselves of both axe and fire to advance their work. Hunters and Indians scour these forests continually, especially in the autumn season, at which time they ascend the streams for trout fishing, or disperse through the woods deer stalking. At night they kindle a large fire wherever they may chance to halt, prepare their suppers, then, wrapping themselves in their blankets, sleep peacefully, extended on the earth, knowing that the fire will keep at a distance any wild animals that may happen to range through the vicinity during the night. The ensuing morning they depart without taking the precaution of extinguishing the smoldering embers of the fire that has protected and warmed them. Farmers and others act in a similar manner. In this way, the woods, particularly in the fall, are gleaming everywhere with fires lighted by man and which, fed on every side by dry leaves and branches, spread more or less. If fanned by a brisk gale of wind, they are liable to assume most formidable proportions. Twice or thrice before October 8, the effects of the wind, favored by the general dryness, had filled the inhabitants of the environs with consternation. A few details on this point may interest the reader, and serve at the same time to illustrate more fully the great catastrophe which overwhelmed us later. The destructive element seemed, whilst multiplying its warning, to be at the same time, Assaying its own strength. On September 22nd, I was summoned in the exercise of my ministry to the Sugar Bush, a place in the neighborhood of Pestigo, where a number of farms lie adjacent to each other. Whilst waiting at one of these, isolated from the rest, I took a gun and, accompanied by a lad of 12 years of age who offered to guide me through the woods, started in pursuit of some pheasants which abounded in the environs. At the expiration of a few hours, Seeing that the sun was sinking in the horizon, I bade the child reconduct me to the farmhouse. He endeavored to do so, but without success. We went on and on, now turning to the right, now the left, but without coming in view of our destination. In less than a half hour's wanderings, we perceived that we were completely lost in the woods. Night was setting in, and nature was silently preparing for a season of rest. The only sounds audible were the crackling of a tiny tongue of fire that ran along the ground, in and out, among the trunks of the trees, leaving them unscathed, but devouring the dry leaves that came in its way, and the swaying of the upper branches of the trees, announcing that the wind was rising. We shouted loudly, but without evoking any reply. I then fired off my gun several times as tokens of distress. Finally, a distant Hello! reached our ears, then another, then several coming from different directions. Rendered anxious by our prolonged absence, the parents of my companion and the farm servants had finally suspected the truth and set out to seek us. Directed to our quarter by our shouts and the firing, they were soon on the right road when a new obstacle presented itself. Fanned by the wind, the tiny flames previously mentioned had united and spread over a considerable surface. We thus found ourselves in the center of a circle of fire, extending or narrowing more or less around us. We could not reach the men who had come to our assistance, nor could we go to them without incurring the risk of seriously scorching our feet, or of being suffocated by the smoke. They were obliged to fray a passage for us by beating the fire with branches of trees at one particular point, thus momentarily staying its progress "'whilst we rapidly made our escape. "'The danger proved more imminent in places exposed to the wind, "'and I learned the following day, on my return to Pestigo, "'that the town had been in great peril at the very time "'that I had lost myself in the woods. "'The wind had risen, and fanning the flames "'had driven them in the direction of the houses. "'Hogsheads of water were placed at intervals all round the town, "'ready for any emergency.' I will now mention another incident that happened a few days before the great catastrophe. I was driving homeward after having visited my second parish situated on the banks of the river Menominee in about 2 leagues distant. Whilst quietly following the public road open to the forest I remarked little fires gleaming here and there along the route sometimes on one side sometimes on the other. Suddenly I arrived at a spot where the flames were burning on both sides at once with more violence than elsewhere. The smoke, driven to the front, filled the road and obscured it to such a degree that I could neither see the extent of the fire nor judge the amount of danger. I inferred, however, that the latter was not very great as the wind was not against me. I entered then, though at first hesitatingly, into the dense cloud of smoke left darkening behind by the flames burning fiercely forward. My horse hung back, but I finally succeeded in urging him on, and in five or six minutes we emerged safely from this labyrinth of fire and smoke. Here we found ourselves confronted by a dozen vehicles arrested in their course by the conflagration. "'Can we pass?' inquired one. "'Yes, since I have just done so, but loosen your reins and urge on your horse, or you may be suffocated.' Part Two. It may thus be seen that warnings were not wanting. I give now another trait, more striking than either of these just related, copied from a journal published at Green Bay. It's a description of a combat sustained against the terrible element of fire at Peshtigo Sunday, September 24th, just two weeks before the destruction of the village. Sunday, the 24th, was an exciting, I might say, fearful time in Peshtigo. For several days the fires had been raging in the timber all around, north, south, east, and west. Saturday the flames burned through to the river a little above the town, and on Saturday night much danger was apprehended from the sparks and cinders that blew across the river into the upper part of town near the factory. A force was stationed along the river, and although fire caught in the sawdust and dry slabs, it was promptly extinguished. It was a grand sight, the fire that night. It burned to the tops of the tallest trees, enveloped them in a mantle of flames, or, winding itself about them like a huge serpent, crept up to their summits, out upon the branches, and wound its huge folds about them. Hissing and glaring, it lapped out its myriad fiery tongues while its fierce breath swept off the green leaves and roared through the forest like a tempest. Ever and anon, some tall old pine whose huge trunk had become a column of fire, fell with a thundering crash, filling the air with an ascending cloud of sparks and cinders. Whilst above this sheet of flames, a dense black cloud of resinous smoke, in its strong contrast to the light beneath, seemed to threaten death and destruction to all below. Thousands of birds, driven from their roosts, flew about as if uncertain which way to go, and made the night still more hideous by their startled cries. Frequently they would fly hither and thither calling loudly for their mates then hovering for a moment in the air suddenly dart downward and disappear in the fiery furnace beneath. Thus the night wore away while all earnestly hoped and many hearts fervently prayed for rain. Sunday morning the fires had died down so that we began to hope the danger was over. About eleven o'clock While the different congregations were assembled in their respective churches, the steam whistle of the factory blew a wild blast of alarm. In a moment, the temples were emptied of their worshippers, the latter rushing wildly out to see what had happened. Fire had caught in the sawdust near the factory again, but before we reached the spot, it was extinguished. The wind had suddenly risen and was blowing a gale from the northwest. The fires in the timber were burning more fiercely than ever and were approaching the river directly opposite the factory. The air was literally filled with the burning coals and cinders, which fell, setting fire all around, and the utmost diligence was necessary to prevent these flames from spreading. The engine was brought out, and hundreds of pails from the factory were manned. In short, everything that was possible was done to prevent the fire from entering the town. But now a new danger arose. The fires to the west of the town. The fires to the west of the town were approaching rapidly and it seemed that nothing short of a miracle could save it from utter destruction. A cloud of hot blinding smoke blew in our faces that made it extremely difficult to see or do anything. Still prompt and energetic means were taken to check the approaching flames. The company's teams were set to carrying water and the whole force of over 300 of the laborers in the factory and mills were on the ground besides other citizens. Goods were packed up and moved from buildings supposed to be in immediate danger. Indeed, a general conflagration seemed inevitable. I've seen fires sweep over the prairies with the speed of a locomotive, and the prairie fire is grand and terrific, but beside a timber fire, it sinks into insignificance. In proportion as the timber is denser, heavier, and loftier than the prairie grass, the timber fire is intenser, hotter, grander than the prairie fire. The fire on the prairie before a high wind will rush on and lap up the light dead grass, and it's gone in a breath. In the timber, it may move almost as rapidly, but the fire does not go out with the advanced waves which sweep over the top of the trees and catch the light limbs and foliage. Nor is there the same chance to resist the approach of fire in the forest. It is though you attempted to resist the approach of an avalanche of fire hurled against you. With the going down of the sun, The wind abated, and with it, the fire. Timber was felled, and water thrown over it. Buildings were covered with wet blankets, and all under the scorching heat, and in binding suffocating smoke that was enough to strangle one. And thus passed the night of Sunday. Monday, the wind veered to the south, and cleared away the smoke. Strange to say, not a building was burned. The town was saved. Monday, the factory was closed to give the men rest, and today, September 27th, all is quiet and going on as usual. And now Pernan continues. What did these repeated alarms filling the minds of the people with anxiety during the three or four weeks preceding the great calamity seem to indicate? Doubtless, they might have been looked on as the natural results of the great dryness, the number of fires lighted throughout the forest by hunters or others as well as of the wind that fanned from time to time these fires, augmenting their strength and volume. Some were certainly greatly alarmed and prepared as far as lay in their power for a general conflagration, burying in the earth those objects which they specially wished to save. The company caused all combustible materials on which a fire could possibly feed to be taken away and augmented the number of water hogsheads in girdling the town. Wise precautions, certainly, which would have been of great service in any ordinary case of fire, but which were utterly unavailing in the awful conflagration that burst upon us. They served nevertheless to demonstrate more clearly the finger of God in the events which succeeded. As for myself, I allowed things to take their course without feeling any great anxiety as to consequences or taking any precautionary steps, a frame of mind very different to that which I was destined to experience on the evening of the 8th of October. The afternoon of October 8th passed in complete inactivity. I remained still a prey to the indefinable apprehensions of impending calamity already alluded to, apprehensions contradicted by reason which assured me there was no more cause for present fear than there had been 8 or 15 days before, indeed less on the account of the precautions taken, and the numerous sentinels watching over the public safety. These two opposite sentiments, one of which persistently asserted itself despite every effort to shake it off, whilst the other, inspired by reason, was powerless to reassure me, plunged my faculties into a species of mental torpor. In the outer world, everything contributed to keep alive these two different impressions on one side the thick smoke darkening the sky, the heavy suffocating atmosphere, the mysterious silence filling the air, so often a presage of storm, seemed to afford grounds for fear in case of a sudden gale. On the other hand, the passing and repassing in the street of countless young people bent only upon amusement, laughing, singing, and perfectly indifferent to the menacing aspect of nature was sufficient to make me think that I alone was a prey to anxiety, and to render me ashamed of manifesting the feeling. During that afternoon, an old Canadian, remarkable for the deep interest he always took in everything relating to the church, came and asked permission to dig a well close to the sacred edifice so as to have water ready at hand in case of accident, as well as for the use of the plasterer who was coming to work the following morning. As my petitioner had no time to devote to the task during the course of the week, I assented. His labor completed, he informed me there was abundance of water, adding with an expression of deep satisfaction, Father, not for a large sum of money would I give that well. Now, if a fire breaks out again, it will be easy to save our church. As he seemed greatly fatigued, I made him partake of supper, and then sent him to rest. An hour after he was buried in deep slumber, but God was watching over him, and to reward him doubtless for the zeal he had displayed for the interests of his father's house, enabled the pious old man to save his life, whilst in the very building in which he had been sleeping, more than fifty other people, fully awake, perished. What we do for God is never lost, even in this world. Towards seven in the evening, always haunted by the same misgivings, I left home to see how it went with my neighbors. I stepped over first to the house of an elderly, kind-hearted widow, a Mrs. Dress, and we walked out together on her land. The wind was beginning to rise, blowing in short, fitful gusts as if to try its strength, and then as quickly subsiding. My companion was as troubled as myself and kept pressing her children to take some precautionary measures, but they refused, laughing lightly at her fears. At one time, whilst we were still in the fields. The wind rose suddenly with more strength than it had yet displayed, and I perceived some old trunks of trees blaze out, though without seeing about them any tokens of cinder or spark, just as if the wind had been a breath of fire, capable of kindling them into a flame by its mere contact. We extinguished these. The wind fell again, and nature resumed her moody and mysterious silence. I re-entered the house, but only to leave it feeling restless, though at the same time devoid of anything like energy, and retraced my steps to my own abode to conceal within it as best I could my vague but continually deepening anxieties. On looking towards the west, whence the wind had persistently blown for hours past, I perceived about the dense cloud of smoke overhanging the earth. A vivid red reflection of immense extent, and then suddenly struck on my ear, strangely audible in the preternatural silence reigning around, a distant roaring, yet muffled sound, announcing that the elements were in commotion somewhere. I rapidly resolved to return home and prepare, without further hesitation, for whatever events were impending from listless and undecided as I had previously been, I suddenly became active and determined. This change of mind was a great relief. The vague fears that had heretofore pursued me vanished, and another idea, certainly not a result of anything like mental reasoning on my part, took possession of my mind. It was not to lose much time in saving my efforts, but to direct my flight as speedily as possible in the direction of the river." Henceforth, this became my ruling thought, and it was entirely unaccompanied by anything like fear or perplexity. My mind seemed all at once to become perfectly tranquil. Part 3 It was now about half past eight in the evening. I first thought of my horse and turned him free into the street, deeming that, in any case, he would have more chance of escape than tied up in the stable. I then set about digging a trench, six feet wide and six or seven feet deep in the sandy soil of the garden and though the earth was easy enough to work my task proved a tedious one the atmosphere was heavy and oppressive strangely affecting the strength and rendering breathing painful and laborious the only consideration that could have induced me to keep on working when i found it almost impossible to move my limbs was the fear growing more strongly each moment into a certainty that some great catastrophe was approaching. The crimson reflection in the western portion of the sky was rapidly increasing in size and in intensity. Then between each stroke of my pickaxe, I heard plainly, in the midst of the unnatural calm and silence reigning around, the strange and terrible noise already described, the muttered thunder of which became more distinct as it drew each moment nearer. This sound resembled the confused noise of a number of cars and locomotives approaching a railroad station, with a rumbling of thunder, with the difference being that it never ceased but deepened in intensity each moment more and more. The spectacle of this menacing crimson in the sky, the sound of this strange and unknown voice of nature constantly augmenting in terrible majesty, seemed to endow me with supernatural strength. Whilst tolling thus steadfastly at my task, the sound of human voices plainly audible amidst the silence and species of stupor reigning around fell on my ear. They betrayed on the one hand thoughtlessness, on the other folly. A neighboring American family were entertaining some friends at tea. The room which they occupied at the moment overlooked my garden. Thus they could see me whilst I could as easily overhear them. More than once, the smothered laughter of some of the guests, especially of the young girls, fell on my ear. Doubtless they were amusing themselves at my expense, out there with a pickaxe. About nine, the company dispersed, and Mrs. Tyler, the hostess, approached me. Actions of the priest always make a certain impression, even on Protestants. Father? she questioned. "'Do you think there's any danger?' "'I do not know,' was my reply, "'but I have very unpleasant presentiments "'and feel myself impelled to prepare for trouble.' "'But if a fire breaks out, Father, what are we to do?' "'In that case, Madam, seek the river at once.' "'I gave her no reason for advising such a course. "'Perhaps I had really none to offer, "'beyond that it was my innate conviction.' Apparently, she had listened. Shortly after, Mrs. Tyler and her family started in the direction of the river, and they were all saved. I learned later that out of the eight guests assembled at her house that evening, all perished. At a short distance from home, on the other side of the street, was a tavern. This place had been crowded all day with revelers, about 200 young men having arrived that Sunday morning at Pestigo by the boat to work on the railroad. Many were scattered throughout the town where they'd met acquaintances, while a large number were lodging at the tavern just mentioned. Perhaps they had passed the holy time of mass drinking and carousing there. Towards nightfall the greater part of them were too much intoxicated to take any share in the anxiety felt by the more steady members of the community, or even to notice the strange aspect of nature. Whilst working in my garden, I saw several of them hanging about the veranda of the tavern or lounging in the yard. Their intoxicated condition was plainly revealed by the manner in which they quarreled, wrestled, rolled on the ground, filling the air of the while with, with wild shouts and horrid blasphemies. When hastening through the street on my way to the river at the moment the storm burst forth, the wind impelled me in the direction of this house. A death-like sentence now reigned within it, as if reason had been restored to the inmates, or fear had suddenly penetrated to their hearts. Without shout or word, they re-entered the place, closing the door as if to bar death out. A few minutes later, the house was swept away. What became of them, I know not. After finishing the digging of the trench, I placed within it my trunks, books, church ornaments, and other valuables, covering the hole with sand to a depth of about a foot. While still engaged at this, My servant, who had collected in a basket several precious objects in silver committed to my charge, such as crosses, medals, rosaries, etc., ran and deposited them on the steps of a neighboring store, scarcely conscious in her trouble of what she was doing. She hastily returned for a cage containing her canary, which the wind, however, almost immediately tore from her grasp, and breathless with haste and terror, she called to me to leave the garden and fly. The wind, the forerunner of the tempest, was increasing in violence, the redness in the sky deepening, and the roaring sound like thunder seemed almost upon us. It was now time to think of the Blessed Sacrament, object of all objects, precious, priceless, especially in the eyes of a priest. It had never been a moment absent from my thoughts, for of course I had intended from the first to bring it with me. Hastening then to the chamber containing the tabernacle, I proceeded to open the ladder, but the key, owing to my haste, slipped from my fingers and fell. There was no time for farther delay, so I caught up the tabernacle with its contents and carried it out, placing it in my wagon as I knew it would be much easier to draw it thus than to bear it in my arm. My thought was that I should meet someone who would help me in the task. I re-entered to seek the chalice which had not been placed in the tabernacle, when a strange and startling phenomenon met my view. It was that of a cloud of sparks that blazed up here and there with a sharp, detonating sound like that of powder exploding and flew from room to room. I understood then that the air was saturated with some type of special gas and I could not help thinking if this gas lighted up from mere contact with a breath of hot wind what would it be when fire would come in actual contact with it? The circumstance, though menacing enough, inspired me with no fear. My safety scene already assured. Outside the door, in a cage attached to the wall, was a jay that I had had in my possession for a long time. The instinct of birds in foreseeing a storm is well known, and my poor jay was fluttering wildly around his cage, beating against his bars as if seeking to escape, uttering shrill notes of alarm. I grieved for its fate, but could do nothing for it. The lamps were burning on the table, and I thought, as I turned away, how soon their gleam would be eclipsed in the vivid light of a terrible conflagration. I looked on the peculiar, indeed almost childish frame of mind in which I then found myself, as most providential. It kept up my courage in the ordeal through which I was about to pass, veiling from me in great part its horror and danger. Any other mental condition, though perhaps more in keeping with my actual position, would have paralyzed my strength and sealed my fate. I vainly called my dog who, disobeying the summons, concealed himself under my bed, only to meet death there later. Then I hastened out to open the gate so as to bring forth my wagon. Barely had I laid hand on it when the wind, heretofore violent, rose suddenly to a hurricane and quick as lightning opened the way for my egress from the yard by sweeping planks, gate and fencing away, into space. The road is open, I thought. We have only to start. I had delayed my departure too long. It would be impossible to describe the trouble I had to keep my feet, to breathe, to retain hold of the buggy which the wind strove to tear from my grasp, or to keep the tabernacle in its place. To reach the river, even unencumbered by any charge, was more than many succeeded in doing. Several failed, perishing in the attempt. How I arrived at it is even to this day a mystery to myself. The air was no longer fit to breathe, full as it was of sand, dust, ashes, cinders, sparks, smoke, and fire. It was almost impossible to keep one's eyes unclosed, to distinguish the road or to recognize people, though the way was crowded with pedestrians, as well as vehicles crossing and crashing against each other in the general flight. Some were hastening towards the river, others from it, whilst all were struggling alike in the grasp of a hurricane. A thousand discordant deafening voices rose on the air together. The neighing of horses, falling of chimneys, crashing of uprooted trees, roaring and whistling of the wind, crackling a fire as it ran with lightning-like rapidity from house to house. All sounds were there, save that of the human voice. People seemed stricken dumb by terror. They jostled each other without exchanging look, word, or counsel. The silence of the tomb reigned among the living. Nature alone lifted up its voice and spoke. Though meeting crowded vehicles taking a direction quite opposite to that which I myself was following, It never even entered my mind that it would perhaps be better for me to follow them. Probably it was the same thing with them. We all hurried blindly on to our fates. Almost with the first steps taken in the street, the wind overturned and dragged me with the wagon close to the tavern already mentioned. Farther on, I was again thrown down over some motionless object lying on the earth. It proved to be a woman and a little girl both dead. I raised a head that fell back heavily as lead. With a long breath I rose to my feet, but only to be thrown down again. Farther on I met my horse whom I had set free in the street. Whether he recognized me, whether he was in that spot by chance, I cannot say, but whilst struggling anew to my feet, I felt his head leaning on my shoulder, and he was trembling in every limb. I called him by name and motioned him to follow me, but he did not move. He was found partly consumed by fire in the same place. Arrived near the river, we saw that the houses adjacent to it were on fire, whilst the wind blew the flames and cinders directly into the water. The place was no longer safe. I resolved then to cross to the other side, though the bridge was already on fire. The bridge! presented a scene of indescribable and awful confusion, each one thinking he could attain safety on the other side of the river. Those who lived in the east were hurrying towards the west, and those who dwelt in that west were wildly pushing on to the east, so that the bridge was thoroughly encumbered with cattle, vehicles, women, children, and men, all pushing and crushing against each other so as to find an issue from it. Arrived amid the crowd on the other side, I resolved to descend to the river to a certain distance below the dam, where I knew the shore was lower and the water shallower, but this I found impossible. The sawmill on the same side, at the angle of the bridge, as well as the large store belonging to the company standing opposite across the road, were both on fire. The flames from these two edifices met across the road, and none could traverse this fiery passage without meeting instant death. I was thus obliged to ascend the river on the left bank above the dam, where the water gradually attained a great depth. After placing a certain distance between myself and the bridge, the fall of which I momentarily expected, I pushed my wagon containing the tabernacle as far into the water as possible. It was all that I could do. Henceforth, I had to look to the saving of my life. The whirlwind in its continual ascension had, so to speak, worked up the smoke dust and cinders so that at least we could see clear before us. The banks of the river as far as the eye could reach were covered with people standing there, motionless as statues, some with eyes staring, upturned towards heaven, and tongues protruded. The greater number seemed to have no idea of taking any steps to procure their safety, imagining as many afterwards acknowledged to me that the end of the world had arrived and that there was nothing for them but silent submission to their fate. Without uttering a word, the efforts I would made in dragging my wagon with me in my flight had left me perfectly breathless. Besides, the violence of the storm entirely prevented anything like speech. I pushed the person standing on each side of me into the water. One of these sprang back again with a half-smothered cry, murmuring, "'I am wet!' But immersion in water was better than immersion in fire. I caught him again and dragged him out with me into the river as far as possible. At the same moment, I heard a splash of the water along the river's brink. All had followed my example. It was time. The air was no longer fit for inhalation, whilst the intensity of the heat was increasing. A few minutes more, and no living thing could have resisted its fiery breath. Join us next Sunday for the exciting conclusion of the Peshtigo Fire at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. There's a lot of neat stuff going on at 1001 Heroes and 1001 Stories Network, and I wanted to update you and keep you in the loop. First, if you haven't checked out our support page at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, please do. That link is in the show notes. We're getting new support to our show, and I can see everyone coming in is enjoying the two special offerings there. Our Best of 1001 episodes and our Prime Cuts episodes. These are basically half-hour episodes that I'm doing exclusively for our Patreon supporters who are helping us reach 1001 shows. So if you like 1001 and want more, patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork is the place to find it. May and June were the months of interviews here, really great ones, and I hope you've enjoyed them. Stay tuned for George Mason, the founding father who gave us our Bill of Rights, coming soon. And Dutch Girl, the story of Audrey Hepburn's role in the Dutch Resistance in World War II, should be out by the time you hear this. This past week, the Earhart Show vanished, interviewed me, and when that episode's available, I'll let you know. More and more people are waking up to the strong likelihood that she and Fred Noonan were on a mission for the U.S. to spot Japanese fortifications in the Pacific in 1937 when they were captured, and that the U.S. government has stayed silent regarding their knowledge of that for 80 years. It's time those two were at least given proper honors for being the first Americans to die as a result of Japanese aggression in the Pacific. And speaking of Japanese aggression in the Pacific... I did not appreciate the very short-sighted review given me at 1001 Heroes lately, calling me a racist for using the term Jap planes as they attacked the U.S. aircraft Yorktown and others during the Battle of Midway, which was what that episode was. That's what our servicemen called them between 1937 and 1945, when the Japanese military was killing captives by the tens of thousands and performing suicide missions, similar to ISIS, all throughout the Pacific Theater, for their emperor. Except our servicemen usually added the word, damn, in front of Japs. I will continue to portray history correctly, despite complaints that I should twist that time in history to please today's politically correct crowd that can only see history through modern-day filters, like telling me that the U.S. cavalry were wanton killers preying upon innocent Indians or implying that we never should have bombed Hiroshima. Please, study and learn your history. Learn it from both sides. That's all I ask. And that's what I try to do at our show. As for the Japanese people, they are industrious, intelligent, and by all accounts, a kind people. I have never referred to them as Japs in my many World War II stories. As for their military, starting in 1937, when they invaded China and killed what is today estimated at over 1 million innocents. And then they followed up by attacking the U.S. at Pearl Harbor and Wake. And then the Philippines and Indonesia, the Dutch East Indies, Burma, Thailand, and many islands in the Pacific, where they enslaved or killed prisoners. Until 1945, when they surrendered and the truth of their wartime atrocities, which were many, became known and documented through years of war trials. Many U.S. veterans then and now describe their military then as Japs. And if any of you do have a problem with a specific episode, please email me at 1001 podcast at gmail.com. Don't hit the whole show with a lousy review calling me names. Thanks to all of you who do send reviews. And for those of you who haven't yet sent a review who are Apple listeners, I would appreciate getting some new reviews at 1001 Heroes. This would be a great time to do that, very timely, and I would appreciate your support. Also, big news coming up on the Ancestry front, and you'll be getting that update uh, fairly soon, hopefully within the next couple of weeks. But uh, using Ancestry, I was able to find the names of my bio parents, and that story's coming soon. Thank you all so, so much for being great listeners and fans, and for your support of Patreon. It's appreciated very very much. Oh, and don't forget to enjoy our other shows, 1001 Stories for the Road, where we now have Tarzan, and we just finished Treasure Island, and those are being enjoyed a lot. They're very, very popular, and we also have 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and we, we've got an Henry double feature out this week. I know you'll enjoy it. If you haven't heard that show, 1001 Classic Short Stories, you need to give it a try. We'll be back soon. Thanks for your support.